Uh, I picked an interesting day to come and speak to you, being that it is September 11th, kind of the anniversary of that. And if you watch the news this morning, uh, you saw a lot of those remembrance ceremonies. And I can remember that day. I think most of us in here uh, remember it. Um, there's, uh, people that are graduating high school weren't born yet, just so you know. Uh, the seniors weren't born, they don't remember, but most of us do remember that, and we can remember the feelings and how everything changed that day, didn't it? And so, uh, today's story, Nehemiah, begins with heartbreak, so maybe it's appropriate this is the book we go to on a day where we had our own heartbreak, and Nehemiah is full of heartbreak and surprise, and we're going to talk about that uh, this evening. Uh, but let's talk about a good surprise, um, and that was one that little four-year-old Whitaker Weinberger had yesterday. He celebrated his fourth birthday, and his mom describes his fourth birthday as the first one he was really well on, because when Whitaker was just 11 months old, he was diagnosed with neuroblastoma. Um, In stage four, it was serious, so he's been in treatment, um, but he's finally well uh, from that. And his mom thought, what would be something he would love on his first birthday where he feels good? And she knew that he loved Transformers, and specifically he liked Bumblebee. Uh, When I was a kid, Bumblebee was a little VW Beetle uh, bug. Uh, Now I think it's a yellow uh, Chevy Camaro in the movies, but that's what uh, the little Whitaker loved so much. So his mom had an idea, I'm going to get on Facebook, and I'm going to see if we can kind of have a yellow car parade uh, to come by on his birthday just so we could see and see cars that are like Bumblebee. And as you know how Facebook sometimes explodes, that's what happened with this birthday idea, that one group shared it with another group that shared it with another group, that on Whitaker's birthday, it was a mile-long yellow car parade that went in front of his house, that he got to come out, and he was completely surprised, had no clue. People left him presents, um, people honked, waved, all of that stuff, and he got his own yellow car birthday uh, to celebrate uh, him being well. And I think what a surprise that was for a little four-year-old Whitaker. Pretty cool story. So as we go to the book of Nehemiah tonight, it's going to have a bit of a surprise at the beginning. Nehemiah starts around 450 B.C., and a portion of Israel has been taken to Babylon. At least that's how it starts. And Babylon has the stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all of those guys. And what happens is it starts as Babylon, and then the Persians come along. And the Persians defeat the Babylonians, and so the Persians are now in charge by the time Nehemiah hits the scene. And Nehemiah is born in Persia, more than likely. That he grew up there, he's never known home. Because Babylon, along with Persia now, takes the best and brightest out of Israel and brings them and assimilates them to their culture. That's what we see them doing. And Nehemiah is one of those characters that gets taken. And he starts on in the story telling himself that while he's in exile, he serves as the cupbearer for the king, that he tastes for the king. We think that's an old practice, but uh, everyone since Reagan has had their own cupbearer, the guy that really does test their food um, before the president eats it. So it's still uh, an old idea. It's also one we still do. But as your cupbearer, your bodyguard, your secret service role, you get to hang out with the king. And so Nehemiah is going to have this uh, conversation in chapter 2 that we'll talk about, we won't read it, but we're going to start Nehemiah 1 verse 1, 
as we kind of look and survey this book this evening. Here's how it starts. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, he's in Iran at uh, this time, Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah, this is how his story starts. It's kind of a surprise to him about how poor his homeland is doing. His hometown, wherever he, you know, his people came from. Jerusalem. It's not going well at all. The walls are down. The gates offer no protection. And that's what Hananiah points out to him. Uh, there's no protection for God's people, which includes God's temple. There's no protection for that as well. And Nehemiah sees the wall as kind of a metaphor for Israel's relationship with God. That just like they aren't with God really anymore, he sees that wall as kind of being their physical metaphor of that relationship that's broken down, that isn't working anymore. And Nehemiah's reaction, as we've read, is he just weeps. He breaks down in that moment. And sometimes for us, doesn't uh, heartbreak happen when reality meets expectation? That we thought, oh, everything was probably fine in Jerusalem, right? I assumed everything was going well, but not so. Nehemiah hears that things aren't going well at all. And so he begins to weep. We sometimes like to fool ourselves to thinking things maybe are going to be okay. It's like when I'll go to a restaurant. Maybe you do the same thing. And they say it's going to be an hour wait. And you, I am pretty patient, but not when it comes to lines. And so if I hear it's an hour, I have to convince myself they're just exaggerating. Like they want to give me worst case scenario, it's probably going to be 15 minutes. And I can wait 15 minutes. But when the hour hits, it's like, oh no, we really are going to wait this long. And Nehemiah has this moment where things are not good. This is, reality is here and it's not good. He's upset about it and he begins to cry and weep and fast. And then we get his prayer and that's what we're going to pick up next. Verse 5, this is his prayer that he prays to God. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps a covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant. Is praying before you day and night, including my, oh, your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. I'm going to stop there. That His reaction again is, to weep and fast, and he begins this prayer. And it's interesting to me that his prayer doesn't start like my prayer would have. My prayer would have said, God, here is the problem. Fix it. The walls are down. It's not good for your people that are left in Israel. Fix it. And that's not at all where Nehemiah starts. He starts with his relationship with God. That he starts with his broken heart. He begins with confession. That we've met two people in the story. We've met Nehemiah, we've met his brother 
Hananiah. We don't know him. We don't know if that's a physical, actual brother, if he says brother in the sense of part of the Jewish nation. Probably what he means, I imagine he does, but we don't know. But their attitudes are completely different, aren't they? There's Hananiah who just kind of says, yeah, things are not good, they're not going well. And then you meet Nehemiah who's like brokenhearted. And he's crushed. And he begins to really go to God in his pain in this moment. And he begins to pray that we Israelites will, will get right with you. That Hananiah and Nehemiah possess the same exact information. Things are not good. Things are bad. The wall is down. But we have only one that acts on that information. Only Nehemiah is the one that's going to try to do something about it. Have you met someone that's more like Hananiah, who says, here's the bad news, let's gripe about it, it stinks, and then they move on? I know sometimes that's me, that I just get hard-hearted. I think we live in a world that needs the good news. That there's a lot of people that say, here's the bad news, here's what's not going well, Here's what I'm going to gripe about today, and it's the way the world is. Nothing we can do about it. We, we'll just keep going. But Nehemiah gets this same bad news, and it drives him to God. That he goes to God with his broken heart and says, God, I need you to work. That, God, that Nehemiah has this broken heart, and he just gives God all the pieces and says, I'm going to need your help in this. That a broken heart can actually be something valuable and it can cause us to act and do something to honor God and to honor others. Jesus, Matthew 23, 37, he's broken hearted in this passage. Here's what he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. And we, if Jesus said, here comes the fire from hell and flaming arrows, deal with it, we would have said, okay, Jesus. But he doesn't. He says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather you, your children, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. That Jesus speaks from a broken heart. Maybe you've seen that picture, it went around Facebook, that actually had the chick kind of protecting her chicks, it's really kind of a beautiful picture when Jesus talks about how he's feeling, that he's there to take care of you. That's what he wants to do for his people. The earlier church experienced broken hearts too. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 9, 1 through 4. We're just going to read 1 through 3. With Christ is my witness, I speak with other truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit can confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. That Paul says, my ministry, part of my ministry comes out of my broken heartedness for, for Israel, my people, that I'm just torn up about it. And Nehemiah is broken hearted. And he does something I think is super odd. And I think it's super odd maybe in this day and age that he starts with him. That he doesn't say those people over there. He begins with 
a prayer confessing his sins, doesn't he? God, here's what I've done wrong. That Nehemiah takes ownership of a problem he didn't create, he didn't start, but maybe he perpetuated. Maybe he was a part of that. That he prays about his sins against God. Archaeologists say the wall's been down for 150 years by the time Nehemiah hears about it. It's not his dad's problem. It's not his granddad's problem. It's much older than that. You can go blame those people if you want to. That's not the stance Nehemiah takes. He takes it and says, no, no, this is on me too. I'm a part of this problem too. I've sinned. I've been against God. So I'm going to take some ownership. Listen to what he says again. I confess my sins, we Israelites, including myself and my father's family have committed against you. We've acted wickedly toward you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant, Moses. But Jesus says, I've, I've been a part of it too. That he could have went back and said, hey, you know, we've had heroes since we've been here. We've had Daniel, we've had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those guys. Remember, we've, we've been faithful to you, God, so be faithful to us now. He doesn't do that. He just says, no, I've perpetuated sin. I've walked against you too. I'm part of the problem. God, you're the solution. Let's do this. Let's fix this. And so he goes in chapter 2 and he asks the king, what can, can I go? Can I go and repair your wall? But I want us to stop and think, what breaks your heart? What is it for you personally that you just think, man, this, that issue, that thing, that just breaks my heart? A lot of the movies we like to go to, a lot of the stories we have are, are broken heart stories. Darth Vader is a broken heart story. That it's because of his love for his wife that he becomes Darth Vader, if you remember the story right. That Hitler's love for Germany is what basically is going to start World War II. And those were broken hearts placed in the wrong direction that they went the wrong way. Hero stories like Martin Luther King's broken heart for wanting a better world for his kids, that was placed in the right direction. Abraham Lincoln wanted to keep the union together. He was brokenhearted for the United States and he lived his life to do that and gave his life in order to see that happen even. And so they begin to build the wall. Nehemiah goes back they begin to build the wall. They have pretty amazing success along the way. Um, do it pretty quickly. There are enemies that come along that try to stop it. Um, that's If you're an enemy of Jerusalem, well, you don't want the wall. You want to be able to go into Jerusalem anytime you want to, to take what you want. Um, and the enemies surrounding Jerusalem, of course, want that access. And so they try to foil things along the way. Really, most of it doesn't work. The best thing they try is the rumor mill, which is we're just going to start some rumors that we're coming and see what the Israelites do. And some of those rumors get going with uh, Tobiah and Sabalat, some surrounding folks. And so Nehemiah 4 becomes a change in strategy. At this point, it seems like they've been putting wall builders by skill. You're good at this, you do this. We're doing this on this part, you guys do this. 
Uh, chapter 4 is a change in plans. We're going to start in verse 13. I'll give you a second to flip there. Because the rumor mill's gotten going. People are getting a little scared now. And Nehemiah doesn't want to see progress stopped. So here's his new plan. Starting in verse 13, Nehemiah 4. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. So his strategy then becomes, I just put them into families. Pretty brilliant. That he'd say, we're going to do this by families now. So it's not that I'm just building a wall because it's good for my community. It's good for, you know, us as a big group. Now you're building a wall because you've got your family working next to you. And it's a reminder that this is why I'm doing this. I'm doing this to protect my fam, the people I care about the most. And so they began to continue building. And then I think there's a lesson in here that church is strongest when families are acting as family, right? When we're together as a family. There's a family a couple of months ago that decided they were going to climb a waterfall in California. That dad had been there before and said, I'd climb this, it was great, and it's incredible. We're going to go on a hike, we're going to do the same thing. And he said, when we get up there, we're going to rappel down just like I did. It's going to be fantastic. So mom, dad, and their 13-year-old daughter hiked up to the top of the waterfall, got up there. Dad said, there's, there's a rope I used to propel down right here. I guess it's gone. He then looked and said, it's going to be, I don't know how to get us out of here because it was dangerous because of slippery rocks and all that things. And they literally got stuck. And they had, it's it's bigger than you're probably imagining. They had a little more room where they could kind of spell it SOS. They had a water bottle with them, a plastic one. They wrote a note in there that just said, please help. Uh, We're stuck at the waterfall. Send help soon. They wrote help on the outside and they sent it down the river. And it was that same day that some hikers found it. And then the next morning, the helicopter went and got them off of the waterfall. Now I read that story and I thought, they described getting all the materials to do this little water water bottle help message in a bottle, that they all had to kind of scrounge together all of their stuff to make it happen. So they could send it down the river. And I thought, man, that's a family that worked together. And that's important to remember as a church that as families, we need to work together. And families are what are going to make up our church. That's why youth and children's ministry are both so important. I know here at Choctaw, because families are best when they work together. Because what happens sometimes nowadays, it seems like, when Families don't work together. We're not all on the same page. What we do is we prioritize the child more than the family. And now your weekends are full of travel, sports, and this event that your child needs to attend. That we sometimes prioritize the child instead of 
the family. And I tell you that as a church that's situated right next to the baseball complex in Dell City. And Sunday morning, I can tell you, well, there's some people prioritizing family and God, and there's some people prioritizing children and softball or baseball. And so, I don't know, it worked for me. My parents dragged me to church when I was a kid. Didn't always like it, but they prioritized being together as a family. My folks did. And I tell you, I tell you that story and I give you that example because that's one thing that breaks my heart. I'm really honest with you that kids will take, or parents will take their kids across the country chasing a baseball or a softball or a soccer ball, but they won't chase Jesus down the street, their church. Because I think families can accomplish some amazing things. And in this story, the families accomplish building the wall. It's the family units in Jerusalem. And so as they finish the wall, probably around chapter 6, chapter 7, it's chapter 6, they finish the wall. Chapter 7, they kind of start repopulating it. And then what we expect next is what we would do in chapter 8, and that is the great wall dedication. We love to dedicate things, don't we? We're going to dedicate this to so-and-so, put their name on it. We expect that in the story. That's not at all what happens. In fact, we see kind of what Nehemiah's ultimate motivation is. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which, had, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. And Nehemiah begins to read their Old Testament the Law of Moses, the first five books to them. That that was there where we've accomplished something. Let's start going back to the Bible, to God's Word. Then what they did is they said, we're going to rededicate ourselves to following God. That He's going to be our center again. And they, So they go back to center for them. They go back to basics. For them it was God's Law. Our basic would be, our center would be Okay, I'll tell you. In a story, I'll tell you in a joke, actually. Bible class teacher was playing a game with her kids. This is a preacher joke. You've heard it a hundred times, probably. Bible class teacher is playing a game with the kids and she asked, does anybody know what's small, furry, has a bushy tail and runs up trees and buries acorns? Little boy says, Well, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel. Okay? Okay, it's Jesus, is our center. He's our going back to the beginning. And if you said the gospel or the good news, we'd say that's right too. Okay, that's all about Jesus. And that's our center and where I think we sometimes get off of sometimes, that we just need to go back to Jesus. We need to go back to love God and loving others. That sometimes, if you're like me, I get heartbroken about the wrong things. That I'll get heartbroken about the state of affairs or the direction of culture. And I, oh, what am I going to do? And if it's, if I'm honest with myself, when it comes to that, I'm like Hannah and I, which is, oh, it's bad. It's not good. I can't do much about it. 
I can't change culture myself. But I can go back to my center. I can go back to my basics and say, how about I just be like Jesus? Or as James 1.27, who makes it really practical for us, it's helping widows, husbandless women, and orphans in their distress. That we go and help families in need. We look for foster parents, parents that are stretched and just not having a tough time. And we say, how can we help? That our broken hearts can be powerful motivators for us. They can say, let's change the world for someone. Let's go build a bridge for someone. That Sometimes with our broken heart, if I'm real honest with you, what I want to go to is Facebook. And I want to say, here's what's wrong with the world. But I wonder what Nehemiah would tell me to do. If I said, I, I just... I just this is wrong. I don't think it's right. I can tell you what I think he would tell me to do. And that is, hey, how about you start with your sin first? Hey, before you get too far down trying to fix this, why don't you deal with your stuff first? Then maybe you need to repent of some things. Maybe there's some things you've done wrong. And then let God move your heart. However he wants to move it. Then you can start building, if you will. Then you can build your bridge. Now, I know what kind of church you guys are. You're not the type that's going to go lobbing bullets. You'll be the type that'll say, Let me, can I bring you a casserole? Can we bring you a meal? We just want to help. And I think that's what Nehemiah would tell us to do. That even with our broken heart, start at prayer. Start there. That'll start the healing process. And maybe that's going to heal your community. Maybe that'll heal some people that live around here, that you live around. Because that's the ultimate mission for us, isn't it? It's to go and be like Jesus to the world around us. I'm mindful of Jesus' prayer about us, really, that he doesn't really pray for a harvest. He doesn't pray that we'll reach people. Jesus' attitude, there's plenty of people to reach. What I'm praying for are workers. Like, let's pray for you guys to go and be my hands and feet. And so I want to challenge you, and I want you to think about who you can build a bridge to. Who can you reach out to? And I'd love to have this great closing story as we kind of wind things up. But what I'd rather you consider is who reached out to you. That I'm going to guess someone reached out to you along the way when you weren't, didn't know Jesus yet. And they reached out to you. For me, it was my mom and dad. It was my youth minister, Randy Roper. It was one of our elders and shepherds at our church, Mark Coleman. I had godly friends that God just blessed me with most of the time. But those were people that reached out to me. And so who can you reach out to? When you're brokenhearted and you're hurting, who is someone that you can help? that maybe we can't change culture tomorrow, but we can change the life of someone tomorrow. We could help someone. So if you don't mind, I'd like to pray that prayer, and then I'll turn it back over uh, to Marty. Father, first I want to pray 
for some broken hearts. Uh, that we'll be moved by something that we come in contact with that we think is not right. That isn't the way you planned it to be and that when we have our broken hearts we'll just be reminded and bothered a little bit by it. And that we'll deal with our stuff and we'll need to repent where we need to repent of the times we've been wrong before. And then you'll begin to use us to build some bridges to some people. Because we know we haven't saved the world yet. That your son is good news and died for everyone. But so many people we love and care about don't know that. And so many people we know need hope. So many people we know need grace. And your son gives them all of that. And so I pray we'll be a people that does that. And I pray in Choctaw you'll use this church to do that. As I know they're already doing. But continue to fill us with that. And Father, I pray that we won't just be people that are bothered and then just let it go. That you'll really burden us if you need to with the ways your son wants to love and help this world. And Father, I am ready for your son to return if he's ready. Uh, we, I'm ready for that day. And I pray in the time we have left that we'll help other people we care about and you care about get ready for that day as well. We thank you for a promise of Sunday. We'll leave our broken hearts behind and we'll be put back together by you. And we hang our hope and our life on that promise. It's in your son's name that we pray as we all say. Amen.